Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Um, I don't see any nursery this morning, so um, it looks like Mrs. Parham gets everybody. So Luke chapter 10, as we continue our, our study, as we continue through the Gospel of Luke, we uh, once again encounter a relatively familiar passage of, of text. I'd heard a story um, about a business advisor of a major corporation. I don't, I don't know if it was actually true, but it makes a good point, so I'm going to tell it. And uh, the story goes like this, that, that a business advisor had walked into the, uh, the corporate offices of a very well-known and respected um, giant business and was seated in one of the, its uh, luxurious chairs and after some, um, I don't know, cordial small talk, the company president began to tell the advisor about all of the many complicated issues that he faced. And it was a rather lopsided conversation. The company president pretty much did all of the talking, except for an occasional question from the advisor. And toward the end of this lengthy conversation, the advisor simply asked the president this one question. If you could do only one thing to deal with all of those questions or with all of those issues, what would it be? Remarkably, it took the president of the business very little time to come up with a response. And after hearing the president's response, the advisor said, good, now do that. Go and work on that one thing and nothing else until you're done with it. And the president said with some skepticism, that's it? He said, yeah, that's it. Work on that one thing. Sometime later, the advisor received a rather sizable check from the president's firm with a note from the president saying it worked. I tell that story um, because there is a significant moral to it or there's a significant point to be made. And that is if we are to address all of the difficulties that we find ourselves in, we just get overwhelmed. Our focus gets so distracted and we're pulled in so many different directions and we are pulled in these different directions because of what has been termed the tyranny of the urgent. Have you heard about the tyranny of the urgent? Um, in, the, in the 60s, a man, um, in the 1960s, a man um, by the name of Charles Hummel wrote this little book. It's 35 pages. You can probably find it free online. I might have a copy somewhere in the back. You can read it in 30 minutes, called, entitled The Tyranny of the Urgent. And the thesis of the book was a passage out of John chapter 17, verse 4, where Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, Father, I have done all that you have commanded me to do. I've, I've finished your work. Really? In three years, Jesus finished the work of God. And this just struck Hummel. It's like, yet there were still people who needed to be healed. There were still um, issues that, that, that needed to be handled. And Jesus is saying, I completed the work that you gave me to do. The problem, according to Hummel, is so oftentimes we neglect what is important 
because we are so distracted by the urgent. So the question then is, if in your walk with the Lord there is one thing you need to live your life for Christ in the way that you know He wants you to live, what would that one thing be? The response then is, why don't you just work on that one thing? But we're pulled in so many different directions. There's urgent, urgent issues, you know, and sometimes the urgent aren't bad. The urgent is not necessarily something sinful. You're, we're so distracted, though, by, by our devices, or our phones are ringing, and we have to answer the phone. We have to respond to the text. Even when we're having a, a nice dinner with our spouse or having a good conversation, and all of a sudden, what's important? A relationship with my spouse. But what's urgent is this phone buzzing. Do you see what I'm saying? What's important? But we're distracted from what's important by what's urgent. And that is somebody saying something on a text. Or I got to update my, my social media. Or I got to do something. This is the tyranny of the urgent. We get distracted from what's really, really important. So the important is basically what will have a profound impact if you do just that one thing. What will literally trans be transformative if you do just that one thing? I'll give you an example this morning. I'm going to give you two, actually. And so I come in this morning, and one of the first things I do when I get here, I kind of get everything kind of set up. Um, but we have prayer at eight. That's important. Here's what was urgent. That light bulb. I walk in and the light bulb doesn't go on and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I got a light bulb out. What are people going to think? They're going to come in, they're going to visit and they're going to see a light bulb out and they're going to think this church doesn't care or first impressions or all of these things. What's important is that I sit down on the pew and pray to our Heavenly Father. But the urgent is saying, I got to change the light bulb. But it's not important. But you see how it's pulling me away, and I'm going to have to pick on George because George comes in today and he, uh, he noticed that, that this uh, decorative ring had fallen down over, over here. Yeah, he's like, right. But see, George and Mona, Mona came to join in prayer today. The urgent says, get that thing fixed. But the important is we need to come and gather and pray in the presence of our Heavenly Father and ask Him to be part of this service and pray for those who are, who are teaching and who are doing the music and who are, are, are part of passing out bulletins and greeting. And that's what's important. But the urgent is so easy to be pulled away. That's what I mean by the tyranny of the urgent. You ever felt that? You ever been pulled away from the important thing by what is urgent, what is ringing, knocking at your door, banging in your head, saying, get this done, get this done. And that's the tyranny of the urgent. And so as we come to our text today, I think that this idea, the tyranny, the urgent will play itself out as we go through this. So let me give you a, a quick 
some quick background information and maybe just a quick preview of where I hope to go today when we look at the story of Mary and Martha. And the story of Mary and Martha, the account of Mary and Martha, is simply an object lesson on the priority of responding to Jesus over worldly concerns. The priority of responding to Jesus over worldly concerns. Because we're going to see in the story that you're very, probably many of you are familiar with, there are many urgent things that need to be done, but there's only one important thing. And so, it's a pretty simple story. I got one point. (laughs) Priority of Jesus over worldly concerns. Let me put this um, account into a proper setting or into its context. This account, this story of Mary and Martha uh, with Jesus visiting them is really part of a three-unit section that describes what it means to be a disciple. And, you know, we've been, in chapter 9 of Luke, we began this whole idea of discipleship. The previous to that point, we were talking about um, who Jesus is, but now there's been this lengthy section dealing with what does it mean to follow Jesus. And here we come to a three-part um, unit describing our responsibility as disciples to God. And the first part was last week. And our responsibility to God as disciple is to love our neighbor. And the way we love our neighbor is to be a neighbor. So the first thing is, is to love our neighbor as ourselves. The second part, which we'll discuss today, is to love God. Amazing that our first The first two great commandments are to love God with all of your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. Last week we saw love your neighbor. This week we'll see what it means for a disciple to love God. And then next, um, well, over the next, I don't know how long it's going to take us. It depends. But over the next few weeks we'll deal with dependency upon gracious God in prayer, which is a a, uh, priority or is a, a responsibility of the disciple towards the God who has saved us. So this unit just fits, or our, our section today fits within this larger unit. Are you with me so far? Then here we go. We're going to read our text today, and then we'll pick up and see what it might have for us. Uh, Luke chapter 10, uh, verse beginning with verse 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care? My sister has left me to serve alone. Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about so many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. So it begins with Jesus entering this home of Martha. And we know that the town, that it's in the town of Bethany. We know this, it doesn't come from our text, but we know that Mary and Martha in the Gospel of John tells us that they lived in the town of Bethany. So they're, they're near Jerusalem at this point. And, and I found it interesting in this, context here that they welcome him 
into their home because Jesus had been unwelcomed. You'll recall just a little bit earlier that Jesus had sent his disciples ahead as they were passing through Samaria and they were not welcomed in Samaria. And then, of course, last week we saw this interchange between Jesus and a lawyer, a legal, a person who is an expert in the law of Moses. And there he was challenged. Jesus was challenged. So we see this contrast. He's been rejected in the Samaritan town. A lawyer has challenged him. And now he comes into this home uh, with Martha, who is the hostess there, most likely the owner of the home with her sister Mary. And here he is welcome. So this is, again, a contrast then. As the lawyer tested Jesus, Martha welcomes Jesus. And um, we're going to see in just a little bit, Luke records that Zacchaeus, who is a tax collector, welcoming Jesus. And this fits the Gospel of Luke very well because Luke loves to talk about how those who were outside of societal norms are welcome, welcome Jesus and love and are loved by Jesus. Luke loves to take the outcasts and make them the heroes of the story. Luke loves to take the marginalized and show how Jesus loves them. And here we see these two widow, these two women. Perhaps Martha is a widow. We don't know that for a fact, but perhaps. Um, but how they are welcomed in the house of Jesus, whereas the legal expert, who you would think would be the hero of the story, is the one who is, I guess, the goat of the story, the one who is challenged, the one who is, quote, put in his place. But these outcasts, these marginalized women, are the ones who are considered welcoming of the Lord. And so this just fits Luke's um, uh the way Luke writes, he loves to focus on how Jesus cares for the outcast and the marginalized. In other words, Luke makes sure that the reader understands that there is no partiality in the kingdom of God. And Galatians tells us in Galatians 3.28 that in regards to salvation, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no male, there is no female, there is no slave, there is no free, that all are targets of eternal life. There is no partiality in salvation with God. And Luke as, as just great at bringing that out. And so we see then Jesus entering into this household. He's welcomed into this house, set in contrast to the lawyer who challenges Jesus. And the focus then turns on to Mary, the sister of Martha. And Mary is really the central figure in this, even though she doesn't say anything. And again, that's something Luke likes to do. Um, remember the woman who washed Jesus' feet. She was the hero of the story. She was the central figure. Didn't say a word, you know, but she is the one who spoke the loudest, even though she said nothing. Um, but Jesus highlights her. And here, Mary is also the central figure of this story, though she's, she is not recorded as seeing, stating even a single word. But we see that she sits at the feet of Jesus. And, and we should note that this is the posture of a disciple. All right. It's not just simply a posture of one who is submitting to uh, an authority, but it is the posture of a disciple. She sits at Jesus' feet. She is in a position to learn. She is in a place to hear God's word. She is devoted then to the authority of Jesus. She's acting like a disciple. And here's the other kind of interesting thing. It's what's not said. 
You notice Jesus does not rebuke her. Jesus does not send her away. Jesus is not embarrassed. He's not, there's not this awkward, oh, gee, what do I do here? You know, it's not, I used to have a, shouldn't have women sitting here listening to what I had to say. He seems perfectly comfortable with it. This is not a big issue for him. And so again, Luke uh, highlights, it was certainly there were the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, but there was a group of disciples. And Luke makes sure that we understand that many of these disciples who were faithful to Christ were, were women. And here we have Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to what he has to say, uh, soaking in his word. And Jesus is perfectly comfortable with this. And this was radical because first century Judah, Judaism considered teaching women to be a waste of time. And here is a Jewish rabbi saying, she's not a waste of time. I'm going to tell her my word. I'm going to, um, she, she wants to feed upon the word of God. And so here it is. And, you know, we see, uh, we saw back in chapter, or in, in verse 21, where even Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things. I think the, the promises or the, the mysteries of the kingdom, you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. This, isn't, this is just basically saying those who make no claim upon, upon your kingdom, you've, made, you've revealed yourself to them, and this would be a perfect example. Here is this... Uh, person who was not considered worthy to be taught, Jesus saying, no, I'm going to reveal myself to her. I'm going to make myself know. Heaven is going to be known to this individual. And she's sitting at my feet. I'm perfectly comfortable with this situation. I'm glad that she is here. here. And I know that perhaps in the West, we take this for granted. Our our girls and women go to school. I I understand that the majority right now, the majority of uh, uh, college students are actually female. We may take this for, as a as a take this for granted, but I want you to understand: lots of places in the world, folks, especially as our as a, uh, people come into our into our uh, towns and cities, and we engage with people from across the world. Um, this is a really really important text because people may be coming from countries or societies where women are still not allowed to be taught, are still considered property chattel of no value. Here, God himself speaks a word to them. And, and this is why, you know, you've probably all heard of the Jesus film. It's been around for a long, long time. But they, they put out a, another version called Magdalene. I think that's what it's called, Magdalene. And it's basically the gospel story, but told from a woman's perspective. And it has impacted, it has had such great impact because they go and they show it to, in, in these villages. And the women are like going, you mean, I'm part, I can be part of the kingdom? You mean that God would speak to me? I've been raised all my life that I'm nothing. And here we have Jesus saying, oh no. You are worthy to hear my word. You are worthy of salvation. You are worthy to know 
what I have for you. And so here we see that the ministry of Christ breaks mold. Those who are sensitive to him realize they are welcome to draw near and draw near they do. And so we see Mary drawing near to the Lord of the universe and she begins to listen to his teaching. And I'm going to address that in a little bit more detail in just a few minutes. But shes I find this very interesting. I find it fascinating that she's listening to the word of God from the word of God. That's going to be really important when we get to Martha. But she's listening to the word of God from the guy who wrote it. What a great opportunity. Think about what's important. Jesus sitting in your living room. What's urgent? Well, We'll talk about that in just a second. So, and by the way, I think this also then foreshadows, because remember, Luke wrote Acts, right? Volume two of the Gospel of Luke is the book of Acts. And in Acts, what happens? The Gospel goes into all the world, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, but into Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And here we begin to see a foreshadowing. I believe we see a foreshadowing. Luke's preparing us for Acts because now we begin to see the Gospel going forth into places that were normally considered not a place where the kingdom of God was to be prepared or approached or talked about. And here it is being spoken to Mary. So, we've talked a little bit about Mary. Let's talk a little bit about the urgent. We, we see the, a hint of the important. Let's talk a little bit about the urgent. And this comes under um, with, with Martha. And Martha, we are told, is distracted with serving. And by the way, let me just say this. As I said in my introduction, the urgent is not necessarily sin. All right? Changing a light bulb isn't sin. It's just not important. So Martha is really distracted with serving, and serving is certainly not a sin. In fact, it would be the Hebrew Scriptures, and as well as the cultural norms of those days, would require first-class treatment of a guest who would come in, especially a guest of the stature of Jesus. He's a rabbi. Even if you don't believe he's the Son of God, he is a rabbi, and you would be at least, I think even maybe scripturally required, but certainly culturally required to demonstrate or show hospitality towards this person. So hospitality in the Old Testament was certainly much more than just a custom. It was a demonstration of one's faithfulness to God. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't bold this text as, as much as I wanted to, but look at Job chapter 31, 32. The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. Here's Job making a, um, a defense of himself where you know, his accusers are saying, you've sinned against God. He's saying, no, he goes through this list of things that he has done that are righteous. And one of the things that he puts forth as his righteousness is this, that the sojourner has not lodged in the street. I've opened my door to the traveler. In other words, I've made sure that I've shown hospitality to the traveler. And then we see, but it's not just an Old Testament custom. There are a number of passages of text that, that deal with this, but also in the New Testament. We see, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is... Um, a major part of what it means to be a, a follower of Christ, to be in communion with, with God, believers. So in, in the Old Testament, it was 
a demonstration of your faithfulness to be hospitable to a stranger. And in the New Testament, we're called to be hospitable to, to one another. And here's the reality. The reality is this, folks. Things just got to get done. I mean, you got a guest and stuff just has to get done. And serving is highly regarded in Scripture. And the, the needs were too great for one person. Martha needed help. What's Martha's problem, though? The problem is the tyranny of the urgent. The problem is that the Lord of creation is in the next room. And you're worried about fixing dinner. The tyranny of the urgent. Urgent things aren't necessarily bad things. But when the Lord of all creation is sitting in the next room, there's one important thing to do. And it's not dinner. And then we see the distortion that, that the tyranny of the urgent creates in Martha. Here she goes. Don't you care? Don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? And by the way, the way this is phrased is it demands a yes answer. She's not giving Jesus the option. She is making sure that Jesus is going to say, yes, Martha, I care, but he doesn't. So here's the crazy thing. Here's how distorted this is. The the God of the universe who saw human sin and human need for a Savior stepped down from glory, put on flesh, walked among us, was going to die on a cross for our sins, though He's done nothing wrong, being charged with a lack of care. The tyranny of the urgent just twists everything. We now have the God who is going to die for their sins being challenged on his level of care. Have you ever done that? God, do you care about me? Really? Have I not done enough? I saw your sin. I dealt with it in the only way it could be dealt with. And now you're one. Do I care? And then I love this. Who's the boss? Make her, make my sister do what I want her to do. Once again, the Lord of the universe is sitting in your living room and you're asking him to, to settle a family squabble. It it just reminds me, and maybe this isn't the best illustration, but it just reminds me, years ago, President Clinton was asked a question and President Obama was asked a similar question. They had two different responses. But the question to President Clinton, um, he was speaking to a college, and the question was this, boxers or briefs? They asked that, and then he answered. Now, I don't know what his answer was. I don't really care. But they asked it of of President Obama as well, and President Obama said, you know, I don't answer those kinds of questions. I like that response. 
you have perhaps the most powerful individual in the, in the world. And you're given one question. You're not going to get a whole lot of questions. You're a college student. And you have one question to ask the President of the United States. That's your question? Really? Because it's not like you're going to have a sit down. I mean, maybe if you have like a, a long conversation, you can have, uh, talk about a variety of subjects. Really? You have the Lord of creation, God of heaven sitting in your living room. And you're saying, listen, I need you to fix this little family situation I got going on. This is where the tyranny, the urgent, we're, we're now accusing the God who dies for sins of not being caring and to settle some little silly family situation. The tyranny of the urgent now is distorting the place of Jesus. And before I go a whole lot further, let me just make a defense of Martha. All right, Because Martha's one of these people that perhaps gets um, uh, bad press, thank you, uh, you know, bad name, and she doesn't deserve that. It's like Thomas. Thomas, what do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas, right? That's just not fair. I mean, I know he doubted, but do you remember way back when, when Lazarus was sick and he died and they were in the Transjordan area and they, Jesus said, well, we're going to go back over and take, raise Lazarus from the dead. And there was a lot of danger there because basically people were seeking their lives. And to go back into, um, into Judea likely meant their death. And do you remember what Thomas said? Let us go die with him. So, I mean, yeah, does he have a bad, did he doubt? Yeah, but you know what? Let's not pigeonhole Thomas. Let's not pigeonhole Martha. Listen to what Martha says. In, in the same kind of um, narrative, um, after Lazarus has, has died, Jesus is dealing with both Martha and Mary. And then in John eleven twenty seven, 27, um, this is what Martha says to him. Well, I'll read Jesus' word. Jesus said to her, he's speaking to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Listen to her response. She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. What an amazing response. We talk about Peter's um, confession. And what did he say? I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what Martha said. In fact, the Gospels, certainly the Gospel of Mark, perhaps the Gospel of Luke, hinge on Peter's confession. The very center, I mean, when you read those Gospels, you'll see the they get up to that point. That's kind of the apex of the Gospel. After that, everything changes. It, the Gospel writers made that almost the hinge of their writing. And here we see Martha saying the same thing that Peter said. Yeah, I believe you. You're the Son of God. You're the Christ of God. Martha had her issues, but let's not put her in a place where Martha's just this, you know, person who gets so distracted forgets about Jesus. Yeah, she did. But she's also, uh, she's sold out. She's ready to roll. So perhaps her life is a little inconsistent, but let us not forget our lives. That might also be somewhat inconsistent. And perhaps we do not want our lives to be, um, we do not want to be typecast by uh, an event where our weakness was, was made evident.
let's not typecast Martha. But here, she's got her issues. Here, she is consumed by the tyranny of the urgent. And so, look at how Jesus then responds. I love his response. It is so, it's so perfect. It's like, there are probably a thousand ways to respond to this. But his was Martha, Martha. These are words of endearment. These are words of of comfort. They're words of love. They're not words of chastisement. Um, the Lord responds, Martha, Martha. He's not condescending. He's not patronizing to her. Basically, it's the hustle of this world has you in its grip. Societal forces and personal expectations, they're pulling you in a million directions, Martha. And of all the urgent things to be done, there's really only one important thing. And Mary has chosen the good portion. Very, very loose. I, I, I think there, there's a little bit of symbolic wordplay here. But I think the idea is that Martha, Martha, there are a lot of things that need to be done but Mary has chosen the good meal. Martha was preparing a meal. She's saying, and Jesus is telling him, telling her, but Mary's chosen the good meal. She's chosen the good food. The food that will not be taken away. Not that what you're doing isn't, isn't good. It's urgent. It's just not important. So Mary has chosen the meal then that nourishes. She's chosen the meal that does not end. It will never be taken away. Certainly, it, uh, we, we find uh, reference to this in Deuteronomy 8.3 and in the words of Jesus where it says, um, uh, where God writes, or Moses writes of God, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. What nourishes our soul? What nur- what's the good meal? Is the good meal the one Martha's preparing? The good meal is that Mary said, I need the words of life. I need the bread of life. I need that, that, that meal that nourishes my soul and will never be taken away. This food, like the living water that Jesus offered to the Samaritan woman, is um, food that it never fades. Jesus says in, in the passage we read, he says, God gave you manna from heaven. Your fathers ate of it and they died. I'm the bread of life who comes down and if you partake of me, you will never die. This is the good portion. That's the good meal. That's the meal that you... That's the important meal. The other meals are urgent. This is the important meal. So manna came down from heaven, but it never satisfied and it never gave eternal life. They had to go out and pick it up every single day. The word of life nourishes and it reaps benefits. The word of words of God, by, by feasting upon them, by feeding upon them, God's words never spoil. They cannot be stolen. They're not transient. They don't come into you and then are expelled. 
They come in and they reap benefits. The Word of God does what it's supposed to do. And it brings forth fruit. What occupies Martha is the urgent. What occupies Mary is the important. That is, it will have eternal benefits. Are you with me? So what does she focus on? She's focusing on God's Word. So here it is. We're thinking, yeah, well, if Jesus were in the next room, well, I would go there. And I would sit at his feet and I would listen. Or if he were um, in a particular church, then I would go there and I would feast upon his words. I want you to understand that God's word is not far from you. God's word is available to us every single day. But I have to ask you, do you neglect it? Does the tyranny of the urgent keep you from feasting upon God's word? I wonder how many Bibles are, are not open from Sunday to Sunday. And not because we're hateful, unbelieving, wicked, bad, nasty sinners. I mean, we may be, but... But how much of it is because of the tyranny of the urgent? Because so many things, I've got to get to work, i got this going on, this, that, and that. The tyranny. Meanwhile, what's the good portion? The good portion is God's Word is sitting on your coffee table. There's a time where you can sit at the Lord's feet and just bask in His presence and, and, and give honor and praise to Him. Pick up a hymnal and sing praises to Him or not pick up a hymn, just sing to Him and, and worship and, and, and offer up prayers to Him. That's, that's the important thing. But the urgent, doesn't it? The urgent drives us away. How many times? Man, I haven't spent time with God in, in, in multiple days. So do we neglect it? The Bible tells us in 2 Peter 1.3 that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. What a great promise that is. People say, oh, I, don't, I, I don't know if I, can be, if I can follow Christ. God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Here's another thing. That God's word equips you for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training in righteousness. What? So that the man of God may be co complete. Equipped for every good work. God's Word equips you for every good work. It is the thing. Look at this. In 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Where are you going to gain the knowledge of the God who made you? He's already spoken in your Word. It's already in the next room. But are you too busy with today's meal to feast upon the good portion? And then finally, Psalm 119.11 says, I've stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's given us his word by which we might be equipped. It is the means by, by which we overcome satanic lies. It is um, how God tells us about himself. It tells us how to love him and to love others. And does it get pushed aside by the urgent. And yet too often, despite these promises, too often we are defeated by sin. Too often we are plagued in broken relationship. When God's word is available, but we are too pre preoccupied by the urgent. 
So hearing God's word is a priority in our lives. It needs to be a priority in our lives privately. Um, I'm not saying, you know, you've got to spend five hours a day reading the Bible. But pick it up and read, read a little bit and think about it through the day. Spend a few moments praying to God. Make that the one thing, the one thing that is important. We also um, see the priority of that um, corporately. And it's one of the reasons why we, we read the Bible in church, not just in the sermon, but you'll see there's an Old Testament. We always have an Old Testament scripture and a New Testament scripture. Today I began the, the service with reading the Bible. Our call to worship was actually reading the Bible. Did you notice our assurance of forgiveness of sins was reading the Bible? This is what we do. We read the Bible. So it's corporately, it's important that God's... Uh, my, my beginning prayer began with a quote from the Bible. Um, and so that was designed that way. The Bible is, needs to be central in, in our worship. Because why? Because it is profitable so that we might be complete for every good work. It is the means by which we overcome the lies of, of Satan. It is the thing that, that keeps us and drives us and helps us to, to, to sit at his feet and hear his word. It is the good meal. So hearing God's word both privately and corporately and um, while I am here at this church for however long God would have me, um, I pray that God's word would be the center of what we do in our worship service. I mean, we pray and we sing and we read scripture and we do a lot of other things, but I pray that all of it is centered around the word of God, the good meal, the good meal. In a few moments, you're all going to go have lunch and I pray that you enjoy it. But I pray more that we give time to the good portion, the good meal, hearing God's word. So I'll close with this. By sitting at Jesus' feet, the disciple, in this case Mary, but the disciple in general, receives a meal that will never be removed. And the bottom line is this, there's no more important meal. They say breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I disagree. Yeah, so... so you, do I need to expand on that? Probably not. I'll tell you what the most important meal of the day is, is sitting at Jesus' feet and hearing God's word. Sitting at his feet should be the priority of all disciples, and it is better to be a listening disciple than an immaculate host. Let's stand and let's pray, and then we'll sing our final song.